Welcome to Leaders of Analytics. Leaders of Analytics is about data-driven decision-making, modern business leadership, and the use of data and artificial intelligence in business and society. Each episode investigates the strategies, tools, techniques, and leadership required to succeed in a world increasingly driven by data and analytics. The show's guests share their stories and experiences in a way that helps you understand the big concepts and small details that make all the difference in today's world of business. I am your host, Jonas Christensen, and I hope you enjoy listening to this episode of Leaders of Analytics. Every company, regardless of size, is dealing with a barrage of data. In any typical organization, there is more information to hand than we know how to use or manage. While every team in the organization is screaming for analytics professionals to turn data into insights, a strong data and analytics tech stack is foundational to being able to make sense of it all. The need for a robust and efficient data and analytics tech stack has created a sprawling industry for new technology solutions that sell the promise of seamless integration and faster insights. Today, there are a plethora of data and analytics platforms available, most with very high valuations attached to them. But do we really need all these tools to make us superpowered data users? To answer this question and many more related to the data and analytics tech stack, I recently spoke to Ben Stansel. Ben is the co-founder and chief analytics officer at Mode. Mode is a modern analytics and BI solution that combines SQL, Python, R, and visual analysis to answer questions for its users. In this episode of Leaders of Analytics, you will learn what the perfect analytics tech stack looks like and why, programmatic automation of the analytics workflow, what will cutting-edge analytics tech be able to do in 5 to 10 years from now, why Ben thinks the chief analytics officer role should be redefined, and much more. Let's get to it. Here's Ben. Ben Stansel, welcome to Leaders of Analytics. It is fantastic to have you on the show. Thanks for having me. It's good to be here. It is good to have you because, Ben, since I started researching for this podcast, I have grown increasingly fond of your writing and more interested in who you are as a person and all the thoughts that you have in your head around this whole world of analytics, data, the technology that drives it and so on. And we're going to get into that throughout this episode. So I won't reveal too much because I, for one, expect that we will hear it all from you. But two, you have thought in so many directions that I'm not quite sure where this conversation is going to go. But all I know is it's going to be highly interesting. So now over to you. Could you tell us a bit about yourself, your career background and what you do? Sure. And I make no promises about this being that interesting, but but happy to try. Yeah. So my career background and stuff. So I'm one of the founders of a company called Node. We make a product that's an analytics and BI product that is used by 
data science analytics teams to create and distribute work around their organization. That's basically a, a BI tool that's sort of an analytics-focused BI tool. That's been around for a while. So I started that with a couple other folks now in 2013. Um, so it's about eight years. Prior, at Mode, I do kind of a range of different things. I, you know, As founders of companies kind of end up doing, you don't really have one particularly sticky role. You end up sort of bouncing around between different places that, that you need to be. So that's included some roles in product and marketing and like support and customer success and solutions, things like that. Currently, I'm more focused on on like the marketing and product side of things, a mix of kind of product strategy stuff. And basically, as, as you alluded to, heckling the internet about data stuff. Prior to that, I was on a data team at a company called Yammer, which was acquired by Microsoft in 2012. It was a early B2B SaaS product that, that we had a data team that sort of shaped very similarly to a lot of data teams are today, where our job was to help the business make decisions, make recommendations to people in marketing, product, things like that, about which products to ship, how A-B tests perform, those sorts of things. Um, and before all that, uh, I actually worked in Washington, D.C. at a think tank doing economic policy research, which is a very different world than kind of the tech and analytics world. But in a lot of ways, it's same page, different book. Like it's taking data, trying to make recommendations. We get to figure out like what decisions to make. It's just the recommendations you're making are like what the Fed should be doing. And the Fed doesn't particularly care what random 20 something year old guy at a think tank says to them. So in that way, like same kind of part of the brain to think about, but you kind of cast it off into the ether and nobody ever pays attention to it again. I've always wondered what, think tanks actually do and maybe you've just described it to us here is there more to it than that i had no idea what they did until i until i joined one like i, I joined one out of college it was kind of a like well this is the job i got i guess i'll take it it's basically like they're bridges between academia and policy like in a perfect world what they would serve is like academics are doing research uh, writing papers doing things that often move pretty slowly or and have sort of like academic aims where it's what is the relationship between this thing and this other thing or like trying to figure out stuff with the point of kind of like advancing knowledge in some ways. Think tanks are basically trying to apply that to policy where it's okay, because academics X, Y, and Z said these sorts of things, therefore we should pursue these economic policies. And so they have to sort of straddle the line between like, what does all the researchers say? And what are the political realities on the ground of what policies we can pass and try to make recommendations to policymakers about given the political constraints and sort of what we believe is the sort of academically right thing to do, here's what we should do. In practice, does it work that way? Not really, because they end up basically becoming tools for politicians to make the case for the policies they want to pursue anyway, where it's like, oh, such and such, I believe in gun control, to take a random example. Therefore, here's a paper that says something that supports my policy conclusion. Like, to some extent, that's how they work today. So, you know, I think in theory, they can be a, a positive thing. In practice, eh, it's kind of an insider DC industry, a little bit of like people scratching each other's back and getting kind of cush jobs. I don't know. It's sort of a little bit on the dole. Well, you certainly got out of that and you moved into a, a different world here. So you described how you went went to Yammer and then worked in analytics there. And then at some point, you must have, have sat there and somehow decided that you wanted to start a BI platform, analytics platform with, I think, two of your colleagues from Yammer at the time. What were the, the moments or I suppose the inputs that sort of crystallized for you? One, that this was the thing for you, maybe the three of you to do personally, but also that this concept, the product that you'd thought up was something that the world needed at that time? Yeah. So the product part was, it largely came from the success that we had seen of an internal tool that our team had built. And one of the other two co-founders was the primary person responsible for building that tool. So we had this data team at, at Yammer, as I said, we were responsible for 
working alongside folks in operations or product or marketing or sales or customer success, basically like help them do their jobs day in and day out. And so we ended up building a couple of internal tools to help us do that, where it was, they were basically like query tools for us to be able to write SQL queries and put charts on top that we could easily share with those folks and, and let them kind of extend the analysis that we've created, which is, is that's basically what Node does in a you know, much more polished and more powerful way. But like at its core, that's kind of what Node is. We basically saw that be successful at Yammer and then started to see a bunch of other companies were building similar internal tools. So like Facebook and Airbnb and Pinterest and Spotify and Uber and stuff that all built kind of tools that were roughly shaped this way. And so because of that, that was, that was really where the idea of like, hey, maybe there's a, a thing to sell here was we saw a bunch of these sort of leading data teams starting to build tools that looked like this. And it was like, hey, if these tools are going to be built, uh, should somebody just make a product like this so that folks don't have to do this? As for like me personally, like why do it? I, I didn't grow up in, in San Francisco. I didn't like think about sort of the whole tech entrepreneurship thing as, as any part of like my identity. I think it was more of an opportunity to work with people that, that I enjoyed working with as a data person. In a lot of ways, you don't have that many opportunities to work at early stage startups because the first, you know, you don't have any customers, you don't have any data. And so it was kind of like, yeah, why not? I think that I was excited about like the people, the the opportunity, but I think that the biggest part was kind of, it's sort of when in Rome, let's try it. Let's see what happens. You know, I think Silicon Valley, for better or for worse, there's a lot of things about it that are, it's not, not a perfect place, but one of the things it does do is it gives people, certain people anyway, like the opportunity to do those sorts of things at relatively low risk. Like it's not like starting a restaurant where you got to go collect $100,000 from your friends and family and take out a second mortgage on your house to be able to do it. Basically, the ecosystem of Silicon Valley is such that you can do that at relatively low financial risk to yourself. There certainly are other kind of risks to worry about that aren't necessarily things that are obvious, but financially speaking, it's Silicon Valley makes that relatively easy. And I was fortunate enough to be able to take advantage of that. So to be a bit more specific on that, did that mean that you had some sort of seed funding quite early in the journey, basically? Yeah. And this was a place where we, part of the reason again, that, that we did this was because we got lucky in that regard. So we were coming out of Yammer had been acquired. It was a good acquisition. It wasn't like some astronomical thing, certainly not by like today's standards. Yammer was for like $1.2 billion. Me and the other folks that I started it with, me especially, like I joined Yammer three months prior to that acquisition. So this was not a thing that I didn't make any money off of that. But certainly like some of the early folks at Yammer did and, you know, the CEO and a couple of other like very early employees or founders made a good bit of money. And so basically in Silicon Valley, as soon as you make a bunch of money, you turn around and like find random startups to invest it in. Like that's, that's kind of how the pay it forward part of it works. And so we had sort of the good luck of after that acquisition, having people we could immediately turn to who knew us understood the product we were building because they had seen something kind of like that at, at Yammer and were basically looking to write checks for exactly that sort of thing. And so, yeah, so we were able to like raise enough money to basically pay ourselves from the beginning. And then from there, you end up in the the sort of Silicon Valley venture, you know, you're sort of tumbled down that rabbit hole. Yeah. What an interesting ecosystem that feeds on itself. Very much, very much. Step one, come up with the idea. Step two, get funding. Step three, build product, sell for a billion dollars, step four, become a VC investor, and then the circle of life continues. <laughs> uh, yeah, though you don't even have to do it in that order. Sometimes it's like step one, raise money. Step two, come up with idea. There are plenty of versions of those too. So, Okay. <laughs> once you're in it, like once you're kind of in that ecosystem, it is one that treats you very, different, very differently than when you're out of it. That there's definitely a, an insider's game in it for sure. Yeah, very interesting. 
we, the rest of the world who are not in it, observe it a bit from afar and hear the stories and anecdotes that you can find if you look deep enough on the internet. And some of these are in your Substack, I think, Ben. But the, yeah, other than that, it's the wild stories that actually do meet mainstream media. Now, Ben, you're the co-founder and also the chief analytics officer at Mode. I'm interested in a little bit more specifically what the company and the tool does and what problems you solve for your customers specifically. So the thing that we, as I mentioned, this came out of this thing we had built at, at Yammer, like the idea was sort of inspired by that. The problem that we solved there and the thing that we wanted to translate into what we built with Mode, largely which, which we have is, The reason we built a tool at Yammer and didn't go out and buy something was because we were a data team that thought that tried to solve problems with relatively technical tools. Like our job was somewhere in between the kind of like capital D data scientist who's off building complicated models and doing PhD level math and the BI analyst who's supposed to be building a dashboard for an executive that they look at every morning on their way to the office. We wanted to use tools that were more tilted towards the first role, where it was like we were writing SQL, we wanted to write R, we wanted to write Python, wanted to kind of ask hard questions of data that required us to, to kind of have like a very hands-on approach to how we manipulated it. And you know, we, we did a lot of like granular things in that way. But we weren't trying to build prediction models. We weren't trying to do things that were particularly hard math. We were trying to just answer questions that were the things that the business wanted us to answer. So it wasn't show me a dashboard of how many users we have. It was why is our user number down this month? Or why did this particular cohort of customers perform so much better than this other particular cohort? Or we just A-B tested this thing. What do we learn from it? And all of those things required kind of the types of tooling that were typically useful for the kind of data scientist folks, but they also required us to have this like ability to interact with other folks around the business who weren't data people. Like we weren't just sort of academics living in a hole, writing hard code, and then building some asset with it every, every six months. We were like sitting with folks on the marketing team being like, what's the problem you have? Let's talk through it. Let's try to solve this together. And so really what we needed was a tool that, that allowed us to work the way that we wanted to work without alienating those other folks. Like We couldn't send a Jupyter notebook to the CEO and be like, here's the answer to your question. Like they would not know what to do with that. And they'd be like, send me this in a thing I can use. Send me a PowerPoint. But at the same time, we couldn't do our work in Excel. Like Excel wasn't the right tool for us or BI tool or something like Tableau. So the thing that we tried to solve was what if we build a tool that has like the technical interfaces for the analysts, but then can be presented with nice charts with sort of easy consumable interfaces and stuff like that for the people who are actually using it so that when we have something to share, we can package it up into something that's easy to say, hey, here's here's what we discovered, here's what we think we should do about it, and kind of collaborate through that. And so that's basically what, what mode is, is it's meant to be something that's comfortable for analysts and technical users that want to live in SQL or Python or R, but also isn't alienating to other folks who don't necessarily know those languages and are just looking to help understand what's going on. Sometimes they want to poke around and explore more. Sometimes they want to do a little bit like self-serve type of stuff, but it needs to be something that kind of flex across that spectrum of good for the very technical folks, but also good for people who, who just want to look at a chart every morning and not think too much about it. Just want to like know what's going on and, and don't need to see SQL or any other code. Yeah, nice. So it's really that there is a chasm there still, but definitely back in, was it 2013 you said when you started the mode? Yeah, a huge chasm between the regular BI and then this, what I called analytics, which is the answering the why, not the what. At the more extreme end, the, the more data science so machine learning type work. At that time, you wouldn't have had 
anything like Power BI, definitely not in current iteration. Yeah, there's a plethora of tools that I don't, don't want to list to risk not including someone, but all the cloud providers wouldn't have had the, their offerings and all that stuff, certainly not to the same extent as now. So you would have really been quite early in market at that time. I see that market as a very competitive market now. There are quite a number of BI tools that have matured a lot in that period to, I suppose, try and incorporate things like what I'm sort of imagining when you describe the mode, the ability to pull in our Python code and so on mm. um, and generate things then and there. But also the big guys have woken up to it. And I know certainly uh, what I experienced when I go from organization to organization is uh, the usual Microsoft strategy of, uh, hey, uh, you can get this for free. And then all of a sudden there's world dominance with the Power BI because it's free in a relative sense with your corporate subscription. How do you see this be? market playing out if i may describe it as that you can correct me if you don't want that label on it this sort of business intelligence tool market playing out in the next five ten years yeah so so certainly there has been a lot of evolution from when we started in a couple ways and so one is as you said there was definitely a very big gap between and it's like analytics space, which is basically what we, you know, Mode's original name was modeanalytics.com. Like that, I mean, it wasn't the, the original website was modeanalytics.com. And it was the analytics part was was very much kind of the, the space that we gravitated towards, which was it's not BI, it's kind of true data science in the sense that we're building production models to recommend what you should buy next on Amazon. And so it was very much, you know, the why, not the what, but also not the predictive fancy stuff. There has been a lot of a lot of tools in this space now. Not in some in analytics, some in BI, some in sort of more data science stuff. Like it's it's there's a, just a lot of sort of it's been crowded basically by people kind of all over the place. My view is two things. One is there will inevitably be some like sort of consolidation around things that people generally believe to be the best. Like it's just the market right now is kind of like completely falling apart generally in Silicon Valley. That sort of thing puts a lot of pressure on, on like young companies and companies that don't have any real traction. And I think like, it'll be difficult. Like there's, there's an explosion of companies that got started in the data space in the last few years, in part because it seemed easy. It was like, you could go out, you raise a bunch of money six months in, every idea seemed like a great one. And, and they may all be great ideas. It's not to say those companies aren't going to last, but certainly like it is not nearly as easy to do that anymore as it was. So I think there'll be some pressure to like kind of, okay, let's pick and choose some winners. But partly because that also comes from the customers themselves. When things are going great, you buy 10 tools because why not? When things aren't going so great, you're like, well, we maybe got to pick three. And so I think there will be some some consolidation that way. In terms of what I like moves towards, I, I mean, I have very biased in this because of, because of the perspective that we have at Mode. But my like belief and in some ways hope is that we don't go back to the way it was where we have these like drag and drop BI tools that are designed very much for business users and like the CIO types. And then analysts and technical folks are off like having to do things in other places. I think that that what we've developed over the last 10 years really as an industry is the need for these kinds of data teams that are focused on solving harder problems that aren't just doing sort of rote reporting. And so the right tooling to me is one that allows those teams to work in the same place as the people who are trying to get BI, like their BI needs met. That there aren't like clean lines between what is BI and what is analytics and what is data science. It's all just different modes of operating with data. And the best thing is like figuring out ways to support all of those things in a kind of a nice interoperable way. And so I think it's like, yes, there will be some consolidation. And yes, you know, it's a crowded space with a lot of different options. But where that eventually goes is 
okay, how do we make it so that we can like work in these things together? So Power BI also can support more technical users or whatever it is, you know, Tableau can support them potentially, or something like Jupyter Notebooks starts to support more of the BI use cases. I think it'd be more of like, let's try to serve the whole spectrum of uses as opposed to let's silo each of these things into their own buckets when the silos aren't particularly well-defined anyway. Yeah, it's really, uh, I compare this space a lot to IT in the 90s, sort of, uh, you know, the we all got our personal computers really sort of at home for not for the first time, but it really started being a commonplace. And I know as a kid, I had to learn DOS to actually into uh, my Pac-Man games and all that stuff, right? And all of a sudden you had Windows 95 that almost any idiot could use. There's probably a space for something like that in analytics where you just make it so much easier for, for things to flow so that you you save time and you don't have to necessarily learn new coding languages all the time to do some tasks that you haven't done uh, before or what have you. You mentioned that there are this plethora of data analytics platforms available. And I'm thinking here of the full spectrum, not just uh, what mode and your direct competitors do. You know, if you start right from data ingestion ETL to all the way to, to output, there are just so many of these guys, and a lot of them with pretty big valuations, maybe half of uh, what those evaluations were six months ago at this point in time, at the end of May 2022. We'll see what happens going forward to that share market. But there are so many tools here that kind of do parts of that journey really well. But often I sit here and think, you know, do we really need all these tools to become these superpower data users or is it just a bit of overkill? Or maybe the right question is, when do we need those tools? So I have a somewhat cynical view of this, I guess. I think that, no, we don't need all these tools. Not really. Like it's, do we need them? To me, it's like, do we need all the channels on DirecTV? Like, sure, there are people who are going to watch some of them. (laughs) That's a great way to put it, actually. I haven't thought of that before. We don't need them. The fact that there are a thousand, everyone would have somebody watching it. Yeah, probably there is somebody out there who, watches it and somebody who's probably really into the random reality show on channel 912 i have no idea what it is but it's probably not great like that we have all of them and i think that it's very probably economically not sustainable to have all of those and this i think gets a little bit to where the sort of funding market was was part of it is like it was relatively easy to raise money and there were a bunch of data people like a lot of data people went out and started companies. And I, and I think that is, you know, I, I did this, I can't blame anybody. I, part of my reason was like, I'm a data person. I don't have many opportunities to do this. Why not? And so certainly if I were, it was 2019 instead of 2013, when I started, I probably would have thought the same thing. So like, I, I don't begrudge any of that. But I think there were probably a number of folks who start these companies less to solve the problem and more because being a founder in Silicon Valley is like, that's one, how you make money. It's like kind of where the cachet is. It's like, there's just a thing that that's what you do. That's the next step. And I think there's been a like strong pull away from data folks being operational leaders and like running data teams to go out and start a company. And part of that too, I think is data as a field in some ways encourages this because what do you do when you hit the C? Like once you're a, a data director, what do you do next? we don't know yet. You go be a director of data at another company. And like, you can kind of sort of hop around between those different things, but it's not easy to become an executive because data folks don't really have that career path yet. And so a lot of people are like, well, this is probably the next step. And especially when the market's easy for that, 
Uh, and again, like starting a company is a little bit of the thing that Silicon Valley tells you to do. It's told me to do it and I listened. That I think that's kind of where people got pushed. And so I think as a result of that, yeah, you probably do get a lot of companies that especially in a market where money's really easy, get overfunded, get overvalued. Maybe they all come out great. Maybe this market's just so huge that it doesn't matter. And that's, that's possible. But it seems unlikely that that'll happen. Again, it seems like, yeah, we've got a, a thousand channels on direct TV and just not that many people to watch them. And at some point, you know, these things can't sustain with 10 people watching. Yeah. And I think the analogy of a TV channel is good, but it also is different in one way, which is when you don't like something on a TV channel, you can hit the channel button and you go, go to the next thing, but it's not so easy with tools. There's typically a learning curve for, for staff and people wanting to learn that tool. There's vendor lock-in, there is uh, implementation costs and so on. So it actually is not that straightforward to just sort of paste together lots of tools in an organization and with the hope of uh, multiplying your analytics efforts. And yeah, the whole lens of people are starting this because they hit a career ceiling as well is, is quite interesting. We might get back to that later. I want to explore your, your thinking on that, but with the fear of not coming back to this topic, I'll just hold off on that for a few minutes because I want to just dig a little bit deeper on, on this topic of analytics technology, data technology. I'm really thinking of the full end-to-end -end stack here. So my inbox is full of new tools every day. They want to present themselves to me, but, but this, you know, what, what do I mention? Cloudera, Alteryx, Databricks, the big cloud providers, all these guys, they, they say, oh, we can, we can easily solve this whole pipeline for you. And it's easy drag and drop and you combine some notes and uh, your analytics dreams will come true. You'll generate information uh, with uh, almost just the click of a button which may or may not be true or once it's set up. And then at the other end, you have post more specialized tools like some auto ML tools that are also trying to streamline, automate or augment the speed and quality at which we can produce sort of very advanced machine learning models and so on. So it's really that whole stack. How do we bundle this stuff together? Because... You've described it a little bit, but you, you typically have both analysts and business users wanting to access and do some analysis on data to varying degrees. You're not going to get your marketing manager to do machine learning or, or maybe some, some do by accident, but that's probably not a good idea yet. Maybe you can tell us whether that will be the, the case in the future, but it's really this sort of, you know, we'll make it easy for everyone. That's kind of the sales pitch typically. Is that realistic? And wh what's the right bundling of all these things to sort of try and serve the full spectrum of users in an organization? So that, I think that's tough. I, there's a lot of ways it could probably work. Uh, my general view, though, is we will find ourselves wanting more bundling than we think. That there was a, a post I had about this recently that was basically about Microsoft. And like Microsoft is a, you mentioned Power BI, it's free, right? I mean, it's in effect free. And you could pay for like premium stuff, but it comes bundled with things that people already have. And a lot of people use it for that. And you could, there's certainly an argument you made of sort of like, it's a monopoly. And it's like some version of them just undercutting the competition because they have this distribution channel that nobody can compete with. And I think that's partly true. But I also think there is something like the people who are using it and buying it find that convenience more valuable than finding like the exact specialized tool that they need. The fact that it is bundled, it's not just a pricing thing or something that gives Microsoft like power to distribute it. It's also something where as customers, it's kind of nice to have everything together. And I think that there will be places where kind of to this point of like there being tons of data startups now, all of these things are these like 
kind of small point solutions for, for small issues that, again, I think are places where that matters. And it's not that those are bad solutions. It's just, can you build an entire product out of it? Which to me implies two things. Can you build enough product, like entire product enough to make the money to make the company sustainable? But also, do customers care about that thing being good enough to buy a separate thing to do exactly this? That, you know, another sort of analogy I use to this is like, you got to choose which tools to stock your kitchen with. We don't have that much space in our kitchen. And you can't, like, there are lots of specialized tools that are great. Like, like an electric juicer is great. Those things are really convenient to use. Love using them. Way easier to hand thing. But it takes up a lot of space. And like when you're making some decision about what to use, it's like, ah, do I really want to take up half my counter space for this juicer that I occasionally use? Like, probably not. Can you speak to my wife about this? <laughs> We've got way too many things on our bench. But like, but exactly. Like, I think that's at some point it's like, well, I would rather have all of these specialized things, but I am giving up something for that. There is a sacrifice that I have to make. I suspect that the sacrifice most people would rather make is, The tool doesn't work quite as well, but it's easy for me to like not have to do the frustrating things of putting everything away and gluing it together and managing this giant like overhead of a thousand things. And so I don't know where those lines then get drawn. Like, does that mean that we should bundle ETL and reverse ETL? Probably exactly the right boundary. Maybe not. Does that mean that we should bundle warehousing with your visualization tool? Probably not, but like maybe like there's... I think those lines are hard to draw, but I do think it's probably will happen where we want to draw fewer of them than we currently do. Yeah. It's a really interesting conundrum because it, it, it is exactly that. Where do these tools start and stop? And the complexity underneath is to some extent that um, this is a comparison that I make at least often. So this is my opinion. You can shoot it down if you think otherwise, but often data projects, whether they're implementing solutions in the business or just that that front end of getting your gestion or your ETL later to be stood up, they all feel, smell, and seem a little bit like IT projects to the business, uh, but they're actually very different because in typically, historically, when we put in software solutions, they're meant to be producing and reproducing the same output given the input all the time. That's sort of part of it is an automation of sorts, right? It, it gives you other things, software, of course. I'm sort of simplifying things a lot. But the nature of data is that it changes all the time. And typically because someone changed something in one of those source systems uh, or the behavior of uh, what's in the data changes and so on. So, so part of the challenge is that it's very hard to, quote unquote, automate and streamline something that changes all the time because you've got you got to have someone looking at it all the time. Do you feel that that's a fair comment or am I being too simplistic in my view of that? And how hard is it to automate this stuff? And it's going to be very challenging. Yeah. So my point is it, it, it often gets compared to, you know, IT projects that are more sort of generic IT projects as opposed to analytics project or data projects where we're trying to pick up this raw material and turn it into insightful decision-making tools of sorts. But there's, there's this variance in, in the raw material all the time that doesn't necessarily exist yeah. in, in, uh, in, in technology, in IT systems or software. Yeah, and I, this is, I think this is true. And I think it's true in two ways. There is a layer of complexity to data things that doesn't exist in other domains. This is kind of what you're describing, which is you have the data itself and then you've got like the things that manage all of it and sort of the applications on top. You basically have like two very unstable things that are kind of having to run into each other, where in most cases you've only got one or the other. 
And like you see this not just in sort of the administration of tools or in sort of building systems, but even like at Mode, for instance, we build a, it's a you can think of it as a BI tool, basically. The, the types of ways you have to think of permissions in that tool is very different than what you would think of. Like you look at it and you're like, oh, it's kind of like just add like Google Doc style permissions to it. But it's very different because you're having to edit. Edit access is also sort of write access or query access to the database underneath it. It's like there's a lot of levels to it that aren't there. If it's I can edit a Google Doc, I can just see what's in the doc. If I can edit a query, I can like in theory see anything behind that query. And so I think that that exists kind of across the stack where it's just like, yeah, you have to deal with the complexity of the data itself plus all of the application around it. There's another part of it where, so like I'm generally not terribly optimistic about our ability to like automate a lot of this. I think we basically have to get better at designing the system that we use and figure out what works best and just kind of have everybody follow those those principles. There's another version of this too, which is to what extent do we automate or like AI our way to actually making sense of this stuff where it's like, what is the day? The point of all of this at the end of the day is like supposedly to learn something. At what point does, can we like have AI tell us what we need to learn. I used to be very bearish on that. Uh, I'm actually a little less now. I actually think, think at some point we could get to a point where that that could be possible or at least like help us out a lot. I think we're a ways away from it, but that I actually think is maybe something we will get closer to in the next five to 10 years. Yeah, and I've, there's probably some sort of Pareto distribution of call it AI can help us maybe point out in, in what neck of the woods to look, it might not tell us the exact insight, but the, you know, look over here. That looks like in this part of the data, there is a, there's something to to look at, and that's already coming in a lot of these BI tools as well. Yeah, there, there's a lot of the kind of like gesturing at things you should look at in tools now of like, hey, this looks kind of funny. Why don't you check it out? Which I still think is a little bit underbaked, but I think like we could get closer to that. We could get closer to a point where like the analyst job is actually helped out a lot by these sorts of things, I think. Yeah, I think that would be an analyst stream. So it, it might seem a bit threatening to some that actually the job gets automated. We all hear about that. But it really is almost always a blessing, in my opinion, when that happens to jobs, um, that they do get this help from technologies to speed things up. But we're never going to get fully automated or not in our lifetime is kind of what I'm hearing you say. So folks out there, don't forget your Python and you, you'll, you'll need it still. And that's also free. I think that's a big part of why that's so popular. Then when I started, it was all SaaS all the way. Now that's not so much the case, but that's probably something for a different episode. Hi there, dear listener. I just want to quickly let you know that I have recently published a book with six other authors called Demystifying AI for the Enterprise, a playbook for digital transformation. If you'd like to learn more about the book, then head over to www.leadersofanalytics.com AI. Now back to the show. Ben, I'm really interested in now going to that space of the people in this industry right? because the show is called leaders of analytics it's it's really about the leadership that's required to drive all this forward you made an interesting comment before around how there is almost this glass ceiling for data professionals in in what they can achieve in organizations in that space because we're forging a path as we go in terms of the selling all this stuff into the business but also the the executive presence or the lack thereof that we have now and we need to sort of 
arguing and push our way. And if I may use those words, maybe they're a bit too strong, but we need to sort of create our own executive roles as we go. We're not the first specialization in history to have done that, but it doesn't mean it's not a big challenge nevertheless. What are the challenges there for data professionals and how do you see that play out in different career paths and different career decisions that people make? You already mentioned, you know, some end up as startup founders to become executives almost. But yeah, I'll let you put your own words on it. So I think there's a an industry question there, like a kind of dynamics of the world question there, and then a kind of a question for ourselves. The dynamics of the world question to me is people don't yet know what to do with senior data people. There are executive level, like C-level data roles. The closest ones typically are things like chief data officers, which actually kind of are more of like an IT and governance role in a lot of cases and kind of like an analytical one. There's sometimes like chief strategy officers, which kind of sort of can be shaped like what an analyst does. I think there's not really like a clear place to go as a senior data person. And also there isn't a clear place to go as like a senior non-executive data person. So if you're an engineer, you can become kind of like a principal or a staff engineer. You can become, you know, these sort of engineers that can work at places like Microsoft or Google and make a ton of money, have very good jobs and not be responsible for like executive decision-making, but instead just be responsible for like the hardest of technical problems. And on sale, like sales reps, very senior sales reps sometimes just say sales reps forever because you made a lot of money as a sales rep if, if you're, you know, you get the, the good customers, the good leads, the good territories, things like that. For data folks, like once you get kind of out, once you pass the, the sort of, okay, you move up the sort of easy career ladder, not easy in the sense of moving up it, but like the easily to map one of, you know, a junior role to a mid-level role to a senior role. It's kind of like, where do you go next? And most people end up in roles of management. The, but a lot of data teams are capped at like mid-management levels because they report into a CFO or a CIO or a CTO and data folks aren't going to get promoted to being the CFO. They're not going to get promoted to being the CTO. Like it's just, that's not the path into that role. So it's sort of like, what happens there? I think in some cases, people end up sitting around and waiting for like a VP role or in some like a chief data officer role. I think a lot of people probably try to basically hop to a different department where they become a little bit more of a strategy thing or like an exec, like a chief operations officer sort of deal or whatever. Those sorts of things I think are like, we haven't really figured out what that path is. I think that, and so partly as an industry, I think it'll be, and I, my belief is if we think that sort of analysts provide value by being sort of rigorous thinkers, strategic thinkers, things like that, there's no reason why that can't apply to the executive team as well. That in the same way we have like embedded analysts in a product organization or a sales organization, it might be helpful to have an embedded analyst. It's basically a, a very, like what a CTO often does at the executive level. It's thinking about like the biggest and hardest problems, but isn't doing it from a management and, and leadership perspective is doing it from a, okay, I'm, I'm in the rooms where all these important decisions are being made. And my contribution is being, being someone whose job it is to think about these things from an analytical perspective. I don't know, maybe. There is, I think, another aspect of this, which is that analysts have to evolve a little bit to be cut out for that. Where there is a, a tendency, and this is this is like a broad generalization, but there is a tendency of analysts of wanting to say, like, here are the facts you decide. And to speak a little bit in like sort of couched language and, and caveat things. And when sort of push comes to shove about what decision to make, it's often like, well, I need to do the analysis to figure that out. And a lot of like executive roles are not executive roles need to be, you don't know what to do, you gotta make a decision anyway. And people are looking at you to like be a leader in those cases and say, data is inconclusive. 
I still got to make a decision. I still got to live up to that decision. I still got to stand behind it. I still got to fight for it. And I still got to be the one that's the buck stops with me if it doesn't work out. And I think there is a desire among data people because we've kind of been taught this way of like, do the research and the analysis and let the data guide us. That is in some ways like a punting of responsibility where if you're an executive, no matter how much the data guides you, you are making the decision, you have to own that decision. And so I think there's like, some of that, that again, speaking in very broad generalizations, uh, that data folks would have to have to evolve on their side. Think about this as like, no, my job is to make a decision despite uncertainty, not to remove the uncertainty from it. Yeah, I think there's a couple of comments on that for me is we talk about data scientists and another way of putting that is a decision scientist is actually the one that makes the decision using data. And if you can make that decision and help people do that quickly, then you're going to be invited into those boardrooms to help with that, right? And that's kind of what you're describing, I think. There is something called the 4070 rule, I think, which was made famous by Colin Powell. He said something along the lines of, you need 40 to 70% of the information to make a decision, but don't wait for the rest. And that's kind of what you're describing in a sense of the decision under uncertainty, which is something that if I join your generalization is inherently uncomfortable for people who... <laughs> who like to get the facts straight with data and analytics. So that definitely is something that we need to be able to bend our own rules a bit in that sense and meet in the middle with everyone else who want the answer now. It's an interesting development. Now, one of the things you talked about was the path that, that you can take from starting your career to the top of the organization. I'm not saying that it's the top of your career necessarily, but that hierarchical promotion uh, that we're talking about here. In other functions like, let's pick marketing, for instance, that also had this challenge for many years that you know you can become a marketing manager, but typically not more. But then you started seeing chief marketing officers uh, pop up, which is probably kind of where we're going now. But then it sort of went to more like chief experience officers, the chief digital officers that typically had marketing plus other things underneath. Is there a bundling of data and analytics and something else that uh, that perhaps could make that successful? You may not have thought of this. I'm sort of putting you on the spot a bit, but... That's a good question. I like... Certainly, it feels like it could be mixed in with other things. The thing is, I think a lot of those things are are things that themselves already have a fairly strong executive presence. So there's a lot of overlap between what data teams and finance teams do, for instance, that in some ways will be people have a negative reaction to that because there is like a general aversion for a lot of data folks to report through finance. Like they see finance as a very different role than what they do. And I think that's, that's generally like a fair thought, but there is like a lot of like kind of reporting and operational overlap there. There's also a fair amount of overlap between like what data teams, like operations teams do and and operations teams that are, that are focused on, you know, making businesses more efficient, figuring out ways to, to help everybody else get their jobs done more effectively. Like data teams are kind of operations teams in that way where they, their improvements aren't like building processes in Salesforce, but are helping you understand what you need to do better. So I could see those things kind of coming together, but at the same time, like there are a COO is very much a thing. A CFO is not going to go away. Like those aren't, aren't roles that are sort of easy to subsume by data folks. The other thing is bigger companies have business strategy teams that are typically kind of like a consultant type of deal that'll come in and sort of help people think through stuff or whatever. That's sort of the most obvious parallel to me of like an existing type of organization. But yeah, that's like not so widespread enough that I don't know that you really get much, much very far with that. I guess there's also maybe kind of like a, 
there's like an IT pattern here where data and IT have some overlap. And IT also like wasn't a very big thing 30 years ago. Now it's obviously a very big important department for a lot of companies. So data could just become another version of that, though. Certainly it's worth pointing out that if everybody has a seat at the table, then nobody really has a seat at the table. Like you can't have an exec in everything because at some point that exec team just is like, well, now we have the real exec team that's back to what the original exec team was. Yeah, and there, there's a subtlety in, in all of this too that the CEO will not want too many direct reports because it's more stuff to manage, but it's yeah. basically right. It defeats the purpose of delegation to some extent. So, so there's only a number of whatever that number is, eight to 10, typically something like that. That's sort of the maximum for that. I can see that CIO analogy playing out in this space because I think now no, no company would go, oh, we don't have a CIO, right? That's sort of... What? What do you mean? Right? That's silly. It's uh, our job then to make sure that in 10 years, 15 years from now, that's talked about in the same way. Uh, when we talk about chief analytics officer, uh, chief data officer, chief data and analytics officer, however you combine it. Yeah, we'll see what happens there, Ben. The future is still bright, despite this invisible ceiling. But something for us to think about, the more we're aware of it the more we can solve it. Look, Ben, we're, we're, we're close to the end of this. I've got a couple of questions for you to round off, but mm-hmm. is there anything that you would like to get across that we haven't discussed in this space uh, that we've discussed today? Mm, no, I think this was good. If you want more of the rants that are on the internet, <laughs> you won't overwhelm you with them audially. But yeah, if you want them in the internet in written form, have at it. There are plenty out there, as you've alluded to. So, yeah, we'll uh, comment on that now, actually. So, Ben, where can people find out more about you, get a hold of your content, and connect with you? Yeah. So, the blog you're referring to is on Substack. It's just ben. Ben with two ends. Substack.com. Other than that, Twitter. I'm not on Twitter a ton, but occasionally that Twitter handle is just Ben Stancil. And then LinkedIn is the same, which is, I don't know if you want to. For the for the professional networkers, LinkedIn for the trolls, I guess, is Twitter. And then for the people who just want to read stuff, Substack is, is probably the best place. Yeah, please don't troll Ben, but please go and read it. his Substack blog. It's really brilliant. I enjoyed the thought-provoking content, Ben, that you have on there. But also, you're a, I'd say you're a talented writer. You write beautifully. There's a lot of humor in there. So um it's part the thought-provoking knowledge acquisition and part just enjoyment. So uh, that's a perfect place to go, really, for your latest analytics thoughts, I'd say. Well, I appreciate that. It's, you know, I'm writing about like obscure tools for data people. is pretty boring stuff. So I got to do something to keep myself entertained through it. So we're not exactly talking about Hollywood gossip here. No, I'm good on you for making it interesting for the rest of us. Uh, there's plenty of the dry articles on those things out there. So the last question is uh, one we always ask the guests on here, which is uh, to pay it forward. So who would you like to see as the next guest on Leaders of Analytics and why? So there are two people who come to mind for me because they are people who do the part of the job that I think is really hard and I think they do it really well. So it's easy, like writing a blog about tools and stuff to me is like, okay, that's, you can say whatever you want. It's easy. It's that's, that's the easy stuff. The hard part is like building teams and helping people in their careers and like being a, being a leader in like the proper sense of the word, not somebody who just like yells in the void on the internet. I mostly yell into the void on the internet. But there are two people, Maura Church, who runs the data team at Patreon, 
and Erica Louie, who runs the data team at DBT, are both two people who I think do an exceptional job of like the actual hard part of the job, which is building a team and making people's careers better and, and doing all those things that that are like the actual difficult work of being a leader. And so I think there are two folks who who a lot of folks could learn a lot from that isn't just like ranting about Databricks, which anybody can do, but you know, building a team and inspiring a bunch of people to, to be better at their jobs. Not something I'm good at, something they're good at. I would love to hear from them. Brilliant. They are two great recommendations and I will be contacting them very shortly. Ben, thank you for that recommendation. Those two recommendations, I should say. Ben Stansel, it's been such a pleasure to learn from you and get insights into Silicon Valley and how it works, the future of analytics tech stacks in all our organizations and how we might go through the evolutions of leadership in data science and analytics in general. All the best for you and for Mode in the future. And I hope to catch up with you again in the future on this show. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for having me. And yeah, I really appreciate this as well. 